We're going to continue our series on Emmanuel. The title of this message is The Sacrifice of Privilege and Person. Emmanuel, The Sacrifice of Privilege and Person. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to read verses 5 through 9. Paul is writing, and he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, verse 7, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Lord, help us as we study. Paul loves the church at Philippi. It's his favorite congregation, we believe. He talks about the joy that the church at Philippi gives him. He's excited about it. He, 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 He... He feels, at least this is the sense you get from the writing, that this is a congregation that loves him more than any other. And in return, he feels a great affection for them. He's writing this letter from prison, Paul is. Not a jail cell, but house arrest. And being under house arrest, he doesn't have the privilege of earning a living. So he's pretty much impoverished. Yet the church at Philippi hears that he's imprisoned and takes an offering and sends it to him. They also reach out beyond and do some things for the church at Jerusalem, we believe, in a time of famine. Paul says nobody shared, in this letter now, nobody shared in the matter of giving and receiving regarding my ministry but you. Every other church knew where I was, but you reached out to me financially. And they did it not out of their abundance. Paul says, out of your poverty you gave to me. He feels such affection for this this house. Loves these people. Now, he loved all his churches. But you know, sometimes you got to love people you don't like. Corinth wasn't the church to which Paul described great affection for. Neither was Galatia. Philippi was. Philippi was the first church in Europe. It was a church that that really beckoned Paul. Paul saw in a vision a man from Macedonia say, come over here and help us. And when he landed, he landed pretty much in Philippi, and he ministered to a woman named Lydia, and she became the first convert in Europe. And then the church began to spread. Paul experienced imprisonment in Philippi. Difficulty. It wasn't an easy place to plant a church. Got beaten, he and Silas. And then thrown into prison. And then thrown into the deepest prison, what we would call the hole today. And then while they were in the deepest part of the prison, they were shackled, hands and feet. That's not pleasant. Yet, in the midst of that, Paul never complained. And through it, he praised. And as a result of praise, His door, prison door, flung open. And so did everybody else's in the prison. All of them were 
amazed at what was going on because none of the prisoners in the prison had ever heard anybody down in that spot shackled with those chains singing praise to God for their circumstances. No hymns were ever sung in prison. So all the people who were freed wanted to find out who are these jokers and what in the world just happened. Earthquake happened, blew open the doors and the warden thought everybody had escaped because he saw the prison doors open and he was about to kill himself. Paul said, wait, 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 wait. we're all still here. I'm just doing a Bible study with the rest of the prisoners. Brett's paraphrase. He leads the warden to the Lord. Takes, the warden takes him home. And, and, and he leads his entire family, Paul does, to the Lord. As well as everybody in his household. All his servants to the Lord. And all of them get baptized that night. Now, it says around midnight, the prison door is flung open. So we're talking about a revival that happens at 2 a.m., If that wasn't so astounding, what I'm about to say will rock your world. What would you do if the prison doors opened in your life? Woo, Jesus. You done set me free. I can go on. The Lord done opened the prison door. It was the Lord who did it now. And so he is, he's obviously doesn't want me to stay in prison. Paul realizes this. If I leave, even though I'm free, I'm free to do it. If I leave, the warden dies. Because any prisoner who escapes is the responsibility of the warden and he dies. Roman law said something akin to this. That anybody who lets a prisoner escape is burned at the stake alive with his own clothes. So Paul said... I love my warden. I love my captor more than I love my freedom. Excuse me, Mr. Warden. Let's go back. Could you please lock me back up? You ain't lived until you have voluntarily locked yourself up in the will of God. You haven't lived. That's when you find out what your Christianity is all about. Comfort. What you want. What you feel. Or is it about doing the will of God and loving people more than yourself? This was the church that Paul birthed with Lydia and the warden and anybody else who might have gotten free from jail. Just an amazing group of people. But like any church, there are issues that need to be addressed because nobody's perfect and no congregation is. And so Paul's beginning to address some things here in the congregation. And anytime you see him beginning to address something that didn't have a, 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 a foundation that gives you understanding as to why he's doing it, there's some understanding in the minds of the people to whom he's writing as to why he's doing it. And you have to assume that he's addressing an issue that we aren't privy to. That's why it's important to always try to get the context of what he's saying, and especially now when the points that he is addressing aren't similar to the points that he's touching in other letters. Meaning, he's not trying to give a blanket theological statement so that all the churches can get it. He's really trying to point out something that's particular to that group of people. And so, he says this. Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. He begins to address the church's attitude. 
I know you don't have any attitudinal problems. But because you know people who do, just listen to me and maybe you can help them. The church had attitude problems. And all of us have attitudes, some good, some bad. We need to develop the good and we need to get rid of the bad. But we all have attitudes. And an attitude is the predisposition that you have toward life circumstances. It's the way you've already postured yourself to be. How you've already decided you're going to respond. I.e., angle let nobody punk me. So you have already dispositioned your soul to not receive disrespect. So that when you get it, pow, you're going to come back and make sure that somebody respects you. Because of the force of your personality. If they won't do it voluntarily, I will show them I'm worthy of their respect. Again, you don't know anything about what I'm talking about. But if you know somebody, (laughs) just take this information. It'll help them. Attitudes. Maybe you were in that conversation with a coworker who kind of said something to you that wasn't very flattering. And you didn't have the moment where you came back with a pithy comment. You didn't have a good comeback. And you just kind of stood there and took it and didn't know what to say. And you were discombobulated in your mind. And now you're driving home. And your brain's just working. Your soul's all in turmoil. You're just, there's a storm raging in your soul. And, you're, and you get home and, 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 and you're watching ESPN. And all you can think about is what that person said. And then you begin to cook. And you're thinking, I know tomorrow when I see You got an attitude. The things that aren't coming to you are, Lord, forgive them. Lord, I release them. I let them go. Help me, Lord. How can I figure out how to bless them tomorrow? They didn't treat me very well, but, but I wonder if I could get them like a $10 Starbucks car. I wonder if that would make them happy. See, you have an attitude one way or the other that predisposes you as to how you're going to respond to your life, life circumstances. Paul said, you need to have the attitude that was in Christ, church. Have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Then he explains it. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. Jesus was amazing in that he had extraordinary privilege unusual privilege, singular privilege, and decided to forego it. Now, the word form here has been debated hotly theologically. People who don't believe that Jesus was actually God will say that Paul was really describing here that Jesus was similar to God, but he wasn't really God. There are so many problems with that. Hermeneutically, which means the entire message that you develop from reading the scriptures, Hermeneutically, that doesn't fit with anything, anything else that Paul says about Jesus. He believes he is fully God. Second, we know not just what Paul says, we know that the balance of all the New Testament calls him God. And the people of Philippi had a problem. They were trying to figure out, well, we understand that he died, but we don't get how, how can God actually become man? 
So maybe he was part God and all man. The problem is being part God is an oxymoron. Either you are or you aren't. So he's got to be all, but they were having struggles with this thing. Couldn't figure it quite out. And so Paul was addressing the issue of Christ's divinity. That he was fully God. And, and he knew this, Paul did, that if you are God, listen to me now, you cannot become un-God. Just like if you are not God, you cannot become him. If you are him, you stay him. If you are not him, you never become him. It's the way it is. So, if he was not God, then what in the world was he trying to grasp to keep equality with? Because nobody who is God can get there. You can't grasp anything to make you equal to him. No way. But if he was God then he could lay aside some of his equality in order to become us. Is this too deep for you? Because you're not saying amen, and these are really good points. <laughs> he existed in the form of God, yet did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when he says form, he's not talking about similar. He's saying there were aspects of his being that were exactly like the Father, but some of those aspects he gave up, none of which were his nature, all of which were his privilege. Are you listening to me? So he, he maintained his, 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 his deity, because you can't give that, up, give that up if you're God. You, you. See, God demands that you are eternal, that you have no beginning and you have no end. That's what eternal means. We can never be eternal. The best we can be is immortal. Immortal means you have a beginning, but you don't have an end. God wants to make all of humanity immortal. So he's trying to fix the end part because you did have a beginning. That's why you're here. The end part, he wants to stop by giving you eternal life that allows you the privilege of not having an end. Are you listening to me? But if you are immortal, you can never be eternal because you had a beginning. And if you are eternal, immortality ain't got nothing to do with you because you didn't have a start. By the way, God's trying to fix the end part by helping you get born again. That's when you repent, say, Jesus, you're my Lord, and all of a sudden you get eternal life, and it's a wonderful thing you get to be with him for the rest of time. Beautiful. But he's saying he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality. So if he existed in the form of God, meaning he had all the privileges that God has, then what is it he decided I'm not going to hold on to? But his privilege, because he couldn't give up his nature even if he wanted to. So what privileges did he give up? How about uh, uh, omnipotence? That's all power. There's not anything in the universe that he did not control. All power was his. And yet he sacrificed that, that he might become like us. He gave up, how about uh, omniscience, all-knowing. He sacrificed 
that, that he might become us, because we surely aren't that. If you were to take the aggregate knowledge of all of human history that mankind has developed, it would but fill a thimble in the vast sea of information. There is so much we don't know. And the arrogance we have to make long-term predictions and to evaluate our, our, our existence outside of the bounds of Scripture and to postulate about a theory regarding our existence when what we don't know is much infinitely greater than what we do is just foolish. And I hope you understand what I just said. He gave up his omniscience. And he gave up his omnipresence, which means every place at once. He filled the universe with his, with his person. I don't know how that works, God, every place at once, but that's part of who he is. That's how he is God. That's why he is God. He, he can do that. He, no, we can't do that. We only can be one place at one time. Angels, only one. Created beings can only be one place at one time. God can be every place at once. He gave up that privilege to confine himself to a human body. Yet his nature did not change. He was all God. So he did not regard equality with God a thing to be great, but laid it down and humbled himself, becoming as a man in the form of us. Now, now this, this, this is amazing to me. That not only did he give up all of those privileges, he was God before he became baby. We understand that to be true. From Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So a child was born through Mary, but the son was given by the father. And this is the, pre, the pre-existent son of God, again, who is eternal. And this God gave up all of his privilege in order to become wrapped in human flesh. And not only did he give up his privilege, he filled himself as he emptied himself. So when he emptied himself of his privilege, he filled himself with our weakness. He filled himself with our ignorance. He filled himself with our need when he had none. See, one of the other characteristics of being God is that you need nothing outside of yourself to exist. We have to have things that we put in us to keep us on the planet. But God, being God, needs nothing outside of himself to to generate who he is. And if he were to expend energy, he doesn't lose it when he does it. I don't know. I know you ask it. How's that happen? I don't know. He just is. When Jesus now had to use energy, I got the rest. He He thirsted. He got hungry. He got tired. He needed vacations. He was fully man. So when he emptied himself, he also took on stuff. It's one thing to give up your privilege. It's another thing to take on liability. It's one thing to say, brother, I'm going to give you my car. It's paid off. It's another thing to say, and I'm going to take on your note for yours. This is amazing. He took on all of our weakness. 
He put on his shoulders everything that we were, and it had to be this way. This is what the incarnation is. It is marvelous and wonderful beyond our comprehension, but it is nonetheless true that even though we don't understand it all, he took on all of humanity without it losing any of the nature of his godness. And in so doing, became the second Adam that can, that can defeat the enemy on this territory. Now, no, 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 no. It had to be this way because God could not just come in and then just, just kick the enemy out because Adam gave the devil the territory. When Adam sinned, he said, basically, I'm serving you now as my God rather than him. And we have been trying to be extricated from his dominion ever since. God has tried to release us from those bounds ever since. And all the the, the sacrifice of animals and the blood spilt by lambs, all of that was simply a a pushing back of the guilt of, of our sin and our wrong allegiance for one year after another after another until it could be finally done by Christ on the cross. But it had to be done from a man who had committed no sin, therefore it was not worthy of death. So there had to be a second Adam who was not sinful in order to pay the sinful price of humanity. Are you listening to me? So now we see some pictures here that we can begin to overlay and see how God did it. We got Adam in the garden. And there he is with Eve. God told him, don't eat from this certain tree. Knock yourself out with everything else. You can have as many apples as you want. Pears, go ahead, asparagus, whatever you want, eat it up. Just don't eat from this one, just one. They couldn't stop. Enemy comes up and begins to lie and say, God's unreasonable. He doesn't want you to eat at all, does he? He wants you to starve. And the woman says, no, 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 he didn't say we couldn't eat from any tree. He just said we couldn't eat from this one. Oh, you know why? Because he's afraid. He thinks when you eat this, you're going to be just like him. And he don't want no competition. And when the woman saw that the tree was desirable for food, It was beautiful to the eye, and it also helped to make one wise. Three things, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the desire for food, and the boastful pride of life, ego, desirable of making one wise. I want to be on equal footing with God. She took of it, ate, gave to her husband, who was with her. I don't know what Adam was doing except taking a day off that day. The man should have just stood up one, he should have said, stop, you can't talk to my wife like that. Stop it, stop it. He was right there with her. He wasn't off someplace working out. He was right there with her. Blew it. Now, I, I want to blame him, but I've blown it enough that I can't. I'm just as guilty. But now, here, we got, a, we, got a, we, got, we got hope now. See, we got this God-man on the planet. Fully man, fully man, but empowered differently. After he's out in the wilderness, fasted 40 days, about to begin his ministry, the enemy comes to him and says, hey, how you doing? I heard you're pretty powerful. Uh, If you all that, why don't you turn that stone to bread? He said, "Eh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of God's mouth, not yours. Oh, you got that word thing going on. All right, all right, all right, I got you, I got you, I got you. Well, you see the pinnacle of the temple? Go up there. Throw yourself down. And that word says, that word says that the angels will give charge concerning you to such a degree that you won't even strike your foot against the stone. Go ahead, throw yourself off and see. Now, other people would die, but not you. You're special. You're real special. You're different. You can cross the line all the time. Appealing to the ego. Jesus said, eh, but it also says, 
See, Jesus was a good hermeneutic, had a good hermeneutic, hermeneutician. He understood that you've got to have all that word in order to understand who God is. Yeah, but it also says you can't put the Lord your God to the test. So I don't think I'm going to do that. Well, 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 listen, open your eyes. You see all this? See the kingdoms of the world? I control them. Babylon, Egypt, the kingdoms in Europe, they're all mine. If you will serve me, I will give them to you. Three areas, lust of the flesh, turn the stone to bread, desirable to do, make one wise, if you will, ego, throw yourself off, lust of the eyes, what you can see. The enemy doesn't have any new tricks, y'all. It's the same old song and dance. <clears throat> I hang around some sports franchises a little bit. And what they do on a regular basis before they go out to engage the opposition every week is they watch film. And when they watch film, they get tendencies because teams have strengths and they always play to their strengths because their weaknesses never work. And so when they line up in a certain way, you can tell what they're going to do. And most players understand. It's rare now where they throw a trick play in there, but most of the time they say, oh, this play's coming. Now the key is, can you stop it? But if you see the play that's supposed to be coming and you were in the wrong position, when you come off the field, the coach says, come over here, let's talk. What, what were you thinking? Well, see, what had happened was. <laughs> and the coach says, we saw this on film every week. We knew they were coming right there. Now, if you get blocked, I get that. But you, they came right where you were supposed to be, but you were out of position. What, what were you thinking? I don't know. <laughs> All of heaven looks at us and says, Samson did that. Didn't you read that? Moses did that. He blew it there. David blew it. Haven't you read? What Did you watch film or not? Ain't nothing new. 1 John 2.16 All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. There's no new tricks. There aren't any new tricks. Jesus came and that, that initial battle of who was going to, to serve who, that allowed us to see what victory looked like on the balance of Christ's life. That any time the enemy came to him to tempt him for something, he said no. He was perfect on the planet. Perfect. Therefore, he repaired everything that Adam did. And then gave God the privilege because now humanity had taken back by right the planet gave God the privilege of coming and inserting his will perfectly on the planet once again. Not just through Christ, but through all of us who love him. And his kingdom could once again be expanded. This is what it was about. So he had to become fully man in order to engage the enemy on the same level that Adam did. And when he did, he won. And he gets to hold on to that humanity forever. This is the beauty of when we get to heaven and the knowledge that we have now. That Jesus allowed for the first time humanity to pierce through the veil of what heaven was, this bar that didn't allow anybody in. And now he keeps his humanity forever as evidence for us that we pass through death. Are you listening to me? Well, you need to listen to this over and over again because you're not getting it all. Because I don't even know if I'm getting it all. I'm talking about it. 
He forever keeps his humanity. That's why he still got his scars, because we're reminded he's not just God, he's man. He gets to keep those scars, and forever we will get to behold him and remember the sacrifice that it took to get us right. Which leads me to my last point. He took on our weakness. He took on our frailty. Everything that we went through, everything we go through, he did, yet without sin. And then God said, okay, I want you to give that up. Do you know how much of a downgrade it was to become us? (laughs) I'm telling you what. I mean, we prize our lives, don't we? Every life is valuable. Priceless. Priceless. Yeah, it it was a serious downgrade. It's the Taj Mahal to Section 8. Public housing, serious downgrade to become us. And our life is valuable. Yet the value that Jesus attained by just taking on weakness, God said, give me that too. I require that too. This is why he is highly exalted. Because not only did he give up all the privileges that he had as the pre-eternal son of God. But then whatever he took on by filling himself with us, he gave that away too. That's why Paul says he, he became obedient even to the point of death, giving his own life away. Yes, death on a cross. Therefore, God said, there ain't nobody like you. There's nobody like you. I exalt you higher than any who have ever been. You get to to ascend as, as a human being to my throne. You sit down by me because there's nobody who's done what you've done. Now hear me. Paul's saying have this attitude in yourselves that was in Jesus. You ever feel like you've given enough? Ever feel like you sacrificed enough? Ever feel like you just can't do no more? And yet God wants you to give a little more. Put your foot on the accelerator. Go harder. Sacrifice again. And most of us say, now wait. Now wait a minute. I have given thus and such. I have been at church at this time. At this time, I serve in children's ministry. I've given, I went to a missions trip. I helped the orphans. You can't expect me. I mean, I have done enough, I think, for this congregation. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, we have a limit, don't we? Don't we draw a line? In our own minds, maybe not one that we can consciously think about all the time, but we know when we've had enough. And theologically, we don't want to ever draw it because we know that's not proper, but we know what rises up in our soul when somebody asks us for more. And all of a sudden, that thing says, hold up, baby. 
Hold up now. Hold up. Hold you. You know you you already just tapped. You tapped. You tapped. You tapped. This is why Paul says, "Get a new attitude. Have this attitude in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who never considered whatever God required to be too much." And by the way. Don't complain about it when he asks. We don't have one complaint of Jesus. Not one. Not one. I mean, most of us, you know, okay, I'll do it, but I ain't happy. I'm a Christian. I'm going to obey, but that runs around on the inside of us. You know, there was one time when Jesus had a conversation about what needed to be done with God. One time. That discussed a contrary will that he had. One time. And let me tell you what I think Jesus was referring to when he did it. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And some have said, well, Christ was so concerned about his own death that he just wished it, it didn't have to happen. I don't know how strongly I can say how untrue that is. Because it would, it would imply some cowardice. It would imply that he feared for his own life. That there was selfishness rising up on the inside of him. I don't think that entered his mind because that's what he came to do. He came to die. But I don't know that it hit him what that death was going to look like when he died until Gethsemane. You know, Revelation's an interesting thing. It grows as you go. If you're a human being, it grows as you go. So as you continue to walk with God, you understand more about what it's going to take to do what you need to do tomorrow. You understand tomorrow more about what it's going to take you to do the next day than you did today. I don't think Jesus was ever concerned about his death. I do think he was concerned about what would go through in that death. There's a statement he made when he died. There are seven of them that are recounted in Scripture. But one of them was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time he questions what God has done, which is in the same spirit, I believe, of him asking in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's a way this cup can Please, let it go. And he sweat great drops of blood in his request. We're not talking about an anxiety attack. We're talking about a man who was begging God so much that he burst capillaries in his forehead because the intensity of his request required such great stress on his body. Same thing. And I think that it, it would probably do us all well to be inspired by the same thing when we complain. I don't know what it meant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But something about the Father and the Son that had never been separated, always been in proximity to one another, something about that changed. 
And we see a glimpse, maybe just a little people, into what happened on the cross when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf as he hung there, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He didn't just suffer for our sin. He didn't just take the penalty for our wrongdoing. He actually became sin on the cross. Don't know what that means, but it's beyond my wanting to understand because the pain of it is too great. And being sinned, that meant that God could no longer look on him. Don't know what that meant. Too cosmic and deep for me. But just like our sin separates us from the Father, that sin made Jesus cry out and say, why can't I get to you anymore? What happened to our relationship? Where are you, Daddy? Where are you? And may your sin, the possibility of it, the thought of it, inspire you to pray like Jesus prayed and say, Lord, may I never be separate from you again. Complain if you're going to complain like that. This is what Paul is trying to convey. That he became obedient. He gave up everything. And not one complaint. Never a crossword. Anytime God said give it, he said when. Just tell me. All my privileges gone. You want my life too? Fine. Whatever you require to do your will, oh God. That's all I want. And because he was like this, highly exalted, the name above every name. Paul says, if you have this attitude in yourselves, like Jesus had, you'll have a really, a very, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. God in heaven, I'm asking for your grace and mercy to inspire us and help us, please, to live the way we should and to never complain about what you require.